Welcome and thank you for joining us on Birth Mother Matters in Adoption with Kelly Rourke Scary and me, Ron Rains, where we delve into the issues of adoption from every angle of the adoption triad. Do what's best for your kid and for yourself because if you can't take care of yourself, you're definitely not going to be able to take care of that kid and that's not fair. And I know that my daughter will be well taken care of with them. Don't have an abortion. Give this child a chance. All I could think about was needing to save my son. My name is Kelly Rourke-Scary. I am the executive director, president, and co-founder of Building Arizona Families Adoption Agency, the Donna K. Evans Foundation, and creator of the You Before Me campaign. I have a bachelor's degree in family studies and human development and a master's degree in education with an emphasis in school counseling. I was adopted at the age of three days, born to a teen birth mother, raised in a closed adoption, and reunited with my birth mother in 2007. I have worked in the adoption field for over 15 years. And I'm Ron Raines. I've worked in radio since 1999. I was the co-host of two successful morning shows in Prescott, Arizona. Now I work for my wife, who's an adoption attorney, and I'm able to combine these two great passions and share them on this podcast. After releasing the previous two episodes of the Birth Mother Matters and Adoption podcast, we've received many thanks for sharing this with the audience. We've also gotten a lot of requests to hear the interview Kelly did with these two brave and candid birth parents to present it in its entirety. Obviously, that would be longer than our normal episodes, but Kelly and I both thought it was a really good idea. So here is the full interview. All these children that are just innocent, they had nothing to do with anything and all I seen was money. I didn't care about nothing or nobody until that moment. Me realizing that it was me, that I was the problem with the neighborhood, and that I was the problem with everybody's families, and why all these kids are getting neglected, and why all these kids were finding uh, they're, they're, the women are pregnant and they're coming out, and the babies are like drug, they're pretty much high. And I was the source of it, and I just couldn't do it no more. I knew that if I didn't break the cycle somewhere along the line, that it, I would be the source of making society so much worse. And it's like, who am I to make the choices of everybody's life? I'm nobody. Mm-hmm. And it's just, in my mind, it's just wrong in so many ways. You know, before I didn't care. It didn't mean nothing to me. If this girl was high, getting high, while she was pregnant, doing heroin or smoking meth, I didn't care as long as I got money. It meant nothing to me. And you made a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And you used to make a lot of yeah. money. So what's a lot of money? Like what? Like if you had to say... 200000 in a week. Come again? $200,000 yeah. They, even did, a, a they even did a newspaper article on my brother. This is the one who they, everything fell on was my older brother. What they, they, they compound, they like... It took everything from us. They took everything and everything went off on him. And the newspaper article was about how we made $200,000 in a week. And all they did was just sit there and collect and do whatever I told them to. You'll never really see their faces ever in the neighborhood. I was the one putting out there doing all the work. I was the one putting everybody on in the neighborhood. It was all me. They knew it. A lot of people don't know it, but it was all me, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, uh, if it wasn't for me, they would have still been nobody. They would have just had all this shit that they could do nothing with. So how did you actually... You can't just stop or turn that off. Like, you can't... How did you do it? Did you go to rehab? Did you... I just stopped and turned it off all the time. I didn't go nowhere. It. it was pretty much my daughter being taken and stuff. I didn't that, go anywhere. That changed a lot of his outlook on a lot of things. Because for months, he tried to get me to go to you moms and everything like that. And I was just 
stuck in the streets pretty much. And even though I was taking care of my daughter and every, she had everything she needed, she had all her clothes, she had food every night, everything like that, she had a place to sleep, it was just, I was just consumed with the streets, too, at the same time. In what way? In every way. She, like, literally, if she seen somebody that was selling drugs and if she felt like that was the person that was the shining the most in the neighborhood, that's who she liked to attract to. Even though she's not realizing, like, 90, 95% of everybody that's in the neighborhood that are doing good, they come to me and they're like, hey, I need your help. And it'd be me the ones that put these people on. And it'd be me the one that make them shine. And don't nobody ever see it because that's what I do. That's what I do best. I, I get but, these, like, little rundown drug dealers that, are, that nobody respects in the neighborhood. Nobody ever really messes with them too much. And I'll put, I'll, I'll go and I'll take them under my wing. I'll give them a bunch of dope when no, nobody, nobody sees what I give them. They know what I do for them, and they love me to death for it. But it's like I already did what I did, and I can't take it back to they're already who they are. But I used to literally take these guys and and like get them, mold them into what I want them to be, give them a bunch of drugs, and send them off into the world. And he was just always off dealing with other girls and stuff like that that were that. I used would to be a go parent. out and hoe for him and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I was pretty much running around the streets by myself. Even though we were together, I was running around the streets by myself and stuff like that. And so I'd stay from house to house, whether it was dope house or not, just trying to basically stay safe with my daughter, trying to keep her with a roof over her head so she wasn't out in the cold or wasn't out in the rain and yeah. stuff like that, even though it was a bad environment for her and stuff like that. And I know that. But it was just like that at the time, that's all I had. And so you were still kind of interested in him and you were a pimp at the time. See, the reason I'm asking you guys these questions is because I'm on the other side. So I've got to learn because I'm trying to help other people. And so if you don't teach me, you're not going to learn this in a book. No, you can't. It's impossibility. I know. I call it the art of manipulation through heroin, especially when girls are on heroin. And people think that these girls are like hauling for me. But really they're not, what I'm doing is I'm literally fronting them drugs here because I know they need it. And I'll give them heroin up front and I'll just keep giving it to them and keep giving it to them. And when they run up a bill, I make them go get it by any means necessary. That means that they got to go and post their ad on, on the internet and have to sell the crack of their for this. That's what they got to go do. And they go get my money from me. Not because they're because I'm really pimping them. It's because they owe me money and I'm a drug dealer and they want more drugs from me. So they'll so go, they go do and they, they'll go do anything, whatever is necessary to give me my money. So what what would be the consequence? Like, if, what if they said I don't have it? Then I would just cut them off, and they'd be sick, and nobody in the neighborhood would mess with them, and they'd always be sick. Nobody would mess with them, meaning nobody would give them dope because he was the one supplying them. So if they didn't want to pay so him, so you really did to hold just, all the strings. Yeah. So it went like this: if she doesn't give me my money, if she goes to try to mess with the next dealer. I'll just say, hey, man, look, check it out. She owes me money. Don't give her nothing. And if you give her something, then I'm not going to give you nothing. Keep so going. they look at it like this. They would rather not give this girl nothing at all than not be able to get anything from me. Because then if they're not getting anything from me, then they're not making any money because I was a bully. I'll go, I'll come with my, my AK, and I'll sit down inside their dope house and sell dope. Sell dope to them and then sell all my dope out of their house and let them see that there's nothing they can do about it. It's either they work for me or they work for nobody, or they just don't work at all. And you held this power because of the, the gun? No, because of, well, yeah, because of that, 
and because of the drugs and because of the other people that, that were so infatuated with who I made myself that they backed me. So it's like either you're going to do it anyway or you're going to have all these young gorillas that don't want nothing but to earn stripes. They want to earn stripes. They want to earn clout. They want to earn the position and reputation and everything in between. And these little youngsters know that if they, if, I, if they do what I want them to, they're going to live a good life. They're going to have their own hoes, they're going to have their own dope house, they're going to have their own gun, and they're going to have money, they're going to have a car, they're going to have everything that goes with the life if they do what I ask them to. Mm. So it's like... What's the average age? Um, nothing under 18, I don't play that shit. These other guys that run around and they, they bully these little young, I don't do that shit. I don't, I don't give a yeah. damn. Kids. And a lot, a lot of times, oh, even when they're 18, I'll, I'll get them and I'll give them an option. I tell them, is this, I will ask them a question. Is this really what you want to be doing with your life? If they tell me no, I just give them some money, enough to where they'll be okay, and send them on their way. Here, go do something different with your life, because this isn't where you want to be at. I mean, even though like I, I am who I am, and I've done a lot of things, I still had some type of conscience about the things that I was doing. I didn't like, if they were too young, and when they're young, 18, 19, 20, you can easily mold them into what you want them to be in every type of way, shape, form, and fashion. You know, it's almost like brainwashing an individual, mm -hmm. you know? And when they're young like that, if they're already too far gone, I'll get them, and then yeah, with no problem. But if they're not, then I try to send them on the right path. Like with me. When I was 15 and we first met each other over at his mom's house and stuff like that, he asked me, he was like, as I used to sell crack when I was 15. I started selling crack when I was 14 before he got out of prison. And that was just basically to survive, to get food for me and my mom. My mom worked at Taco Bell and everything like that, but she just, like, by the time she paid rent and everything like that, we didn't have much. So without her knowing, I would just go and I, would, I started selling crack. When I was selling crack, for a couple of years and then I then we met each other and he was like well how do you feel about selling dope and I at first I told him I was like I don't mess with that because just everybody I knew the lives were messed up from it and he was like so he left it at that a couple months later I call him and I asked him for some dope for some G and he was like he was okay, like you're back you're up what is what is G yeah. I don't mean crystal meth okay yeah and he was like, he was like, you're messing with that stuff now. And my first reaction was like, no, I'm not. No, no. Like I wasn't gonna tell him, tell him, yeah, I'm doing dope now. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. Never showed up. And then next time I seen him was we were hanging out at his mom's house, and I had a pipe and some uh, some dope in a bag and stuff. And I was like, I loaded a bowl and I was I hit it and I was like, you wanna smoke with me? And he's like, he's like, um, yeah, let me see that. And he grabbed it and he looked at it and he was like, this ain't how you load a bowl. Let me see your sack. So I handed him the sack. He turned around and walked out the door with it. And I'm sitting here like, did he just rob me? That's how I felt like at the time. Did he just rob me? And at, not me at the time, I didn't realize it. But now I realize it like he was just trying to get me to not smoke. Because when I first met him, what I told him was that I didn't mess with that. I was only out for seven months at the time when, uh, like, I, I got arrested, like, the beginning of, I got out the middle of 2012, and then I got arrested in the beginning of 2013, so I wasn't out that long when I first met her. When I got out, she was grown. But the second go-around, when I got out that second time, they tried to reco-act me in the end. What does that mean? 
they try to give me natural life for um, criminal mob boss syndicate, for money laundering, for drug trafficking, for um, for guns. So one of my brothers got caught with, he had uh, 42 counts of misconduct involving weapons, four sales charges to an ATF agent, a bunch of uh, drug charges. They tried to hit us with a bunch of money laundering charges. How did you only get four years? Because the um, we had the same prosecutor and she was, a, she was a new prosecutor. So when she went to file, she misfiled. She didn't know what she was doing. She tried to hit the RICO Act on us and didn't know how to file it properly. And because she misfiled her RICO Act, we walked. The first time I ever got arrested, I was with his brother that got charged with 42 gun charges. They raided the house that we were staying at. And I just so happened to be over there picking up my stuff. And I walked up and I told him, I was like, you're about to get raided. And he's like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. So he goes and gets in the shower and I'm still up there because there were a couple people in the house and I was just like watching his back basically, making sure they didn't do anything. And one of the people, I, about a year prior to that, I told him, I was like, this girl's gonna set you up. She's gonna set you up. I'm telling you right now, just the question she was asking me, she's not in it for you. And sure, sure enough, we got raided. The police knocked on the door. She got up and answered it and just opened the door for him. And then next thing I know, there's like 30 officers swarming the apartment. He's on house arrest at the time with an ankle monitor and for gun charges. And there's three guns laying out. Two of them weren't actual guns. One was just like a green gas Uzi. The other one was a 45 pellet gun. Mm -hmm. But they were the ones that look real. So in any case, if you if they look real enough that you can commit a crime like robbing somebody, you get charged with with a real that, uh, possession of weapons. With the R's, they're less lethal firearms. They're um, they're actual real they're actual real guns that were converted into airsoft pistols. That's what a lot of people fail to realize. They just change the top slide out to where the bullets can't pop out of them. And like if you were to take them apart, the bottom part slide and the trigger part, the uh, the actual. Um, firing pin mechanism that's there is flipped around the, the other way. So all it does is just pop the BB out. You see what I'm saying? And, and, but so why use did, those? That's just, that's just they, they take old firearms that, mm -hmm. that, that are recycle probably, them. Yeah, and recycle them and turn them into and airsoft then, And then they can, you can easily try, like, mix, like, bake them back to a regular gun with no problem. Hmm. Just takes a little bit of, a little bit of elbow it, grease and it's it back takes, into it a regular pistol. It takes a top pistol. slide a, a recoil spring and a firing pin, and that's it. And you can you can convert it right back into a uh, um, into a firearm like nothing. And then oh, and the barrel you got to change the barrel out. And so they, they came in, they arrested him off uh, automatically. They pulled him out of the shower, made, put him put some shorts on him, and put him in cuffs and put him in the car and took him to jail. And I'm I'm the only one left. Like that's how I knew the the girl who set us up is because they didn't ask her no questions, not name, not social, nothing. They just were like, okay, you're free to go. And so I was like, I was the last one left in the apartment. They took him to jail. Um, Why not you? Well, they hadn't taken me to jail yet. I, ha I, I was only 18. I had just turned 18. Had no charges. Never been arrested in juvie or anything like that. And they're all like, well, what are you doing here? They're looking at me like, like you don't even belong in this scene, basically, because I had never been in trouble. And I, was, I asked them for the wallet, which was his wallet. I claimed his wallet so that I could put his money on his books. And when the girl that set us up had taken the wallet and, the, and his sack of dope, and put it in a uh, little bag together. So when they found the wallet, they found a, a quarter ounce of dope. And they were like, well, look at here, whose is this? And I was like, I, I looked at him, I said, to be honest with you, 
I'm gonna tell you right now, it's not mine, but I don't know whose it is. And so they took me to jail and charged me with a quarter ounce of dope. Possession of dangerous drugs. That was the first charge I ever caught. And then right. ever, ever since then, up in, and that was in 2014. Up until 2017, the, in the middle of 2017, I was dealing with that charge. Yeah, so around the time when I came to realization that I was messing up the neighborhood, she was pregnant, uh, she had already uh, given this child up for adoption that she already didn't want, and I was I was housing her at the time, and uh, I ran into one of my baby's mothers, and that's when she tells us about the adoption agency because she was still using drugs at the time, and um, she was scared, but she, my, my baby's mother was like, hey, it doesn't matter if, if she's doing drugs, they'll protect her. So we end up meeting this this uh, a lawyer who ended up and she gives a baby up for adoption. The adoption agency, but it was it was uh, my baby's mom who was like, "Hey, don't worry about it," because she was doing the same thing and was still getting high and still was messing with the adoption agency and stuff like that. And then around a little bit later on, she gets pregnant and like our lives were just like flipped upside down, going crazy and doing all kind of wild stuff. And it's just like uh, I felt like giving a child up for adoption is probably like one of the most beautiful things you could possibly do for yourself, for the child, for the family that can't have children. And it's like, it breaks the cycle of, you know, like, obviously you could look at me and see that I'm like, I'm not all there and that I used to be a gangbanger. If you know me well enough, you'd know that I used to be a boss drug dealer and everything in between. Anything that, that, that was having to do with streets and doing wrong, I'll have my hands in it, like literally any and everything, I had my hands in it. And I would go all the way from... It's tattoos on them that say, read right here? No, on the... Oh, yeah. From selling drugs. But like, he used uh, to stand there like that all the time. Yeah, because I don't play that. It's like, you could, have somebody, you could have somebody that was like a real good friend of yours, and you, you give them credit, and then they don't pay you, and now you feel some type of way because he feels like he don't have to pay you. And now somebody that wants you to be a good friend of yours is not your enemy because you done messed him up or you sent somebody to kick in his door and go get your money from him. And now you guys are beefing over money. So I just never give credit to anybody to alleviate all the, you know, extra stuff that can come along with it. You know? Yeah. So he used to stand there like this, cash only. When people would come to buy drugs from him, he'd just stand there with his arms crossed, cash only. Like, <laughs> I thought about being like a youth counselor and like getting these young kids that are in the neighborhood that think that they know what they're doing, they think they know that they're grown, and they think that they, they know that they want to do with their life, and I'll show them something new that everybody else sees, and then I'll show them something new, something that they don't know how to do, and never even been taught how to do, and then show them the direction that they should be going with their life. Like the one that I've been working on is this young kid, nobody gives a two, he's only 16 years old, he runs the streets, he gets high, and like I, at first I wouldn't let nobody get, get give him drugs around me. He wasn't allowed to get high around me. I told him if you try to get high in the room with me, I'm gonna beat you up. You're gonna have some respect for me. If you feel like you wanna smoke in the room where I'm at, just say, hey, check it out, OG. Is it all right if I smoke? And I'll step out the room. But you're not gonna smoke in the room with me. And he respected that and he did it every time. At first he He'll didn't, at first bathroom. he would look at him like, and I, I, sat, I sat there and I talked to the little boy. I was like, look, <laughs> it's just how he is. It's the same way he was with me. And to be honest with you, if when I was your age, I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have. But I didn't. I didn't have it 
in my mind that it was bad for me, not until way later. But he's starting to get it here and there. I've been pushing him to go to Job Corps every day and pushing him to go to Job Corps every day. And even like some of my he little, wants you know, to go my back little to homeboys school. and stuff like that. I make, I make them threaten him like, hey, he has a curfew now. He's not allowed to run around the streets. If me and my homeboys see him out on the streets, they'll beat him up because he's past curfew and make him go register in the school because if he don't, he's going to get beat up and he's afraid of it and he goes and does what he's supposed to. Eight o'clock, he's inside because he's not allowed to be outside past there. You're just a kid. You're no business being out here. And he'll stay in until the next, until the sun comes up and that's when you can go out. What if somebody had done that with you? I probably wouldn't be this way. Like I was raised different. My dad was a gangbanger. He's from Southside 35th. I didn't meet him until I was like 10 years old because he killed some, He tried to kill somebody. Over a poncho. Over, over, sit this dude's ear from, sit this dude's throat from ear to ear over a poncho. That he gave his mom and a guy picked, she had taken it off at a party and he picked it up and was wearing it. And so he thought that there was something going on between him, his mom and the dude and just walked up, so took the poncho don't and walked know about off. Me though, it's like, I'm a product of rape. My mother and my father split ways after this. And then like along the time when like he catches her at another party and she's all drunk and he gets her and he's having sex with her and stabbed, rapes her, stabbed her in the back. She got to cut on her back probably like, uh, probably about a good five inches from him breaking a beer bottle and stabbing it into the back of her and twisting it and then running it up her back. Why did he do that? Because he was so hurt on the fact that he, she, she had left him. You know, my dad's like like 100% true blue. I'm surprised he's not on, like on like a serial killer list because that's how bad he is. What does true blue mean? Like, um, it's as real as it gets. Somebody that likes blood. No, he's like a murderer, like stone cold murderer. Don't get no worse than that. Is he in prison now? I don't know, no, no. And then my mother, she was a prostitute. She was a crackhead when I was growing up. I used to live in this, this hotel called The Sandman. And like my mother would trade me I'm for- I'm familiar drugs. with that, actually. I used to live in The Sandman Motel when I was a kid. Okay. And my mother would trade me for drugs to tricks and to homosexual men when I was just a kid. Five, six, and seven, those were the worst times in my life. Yeah. I will sit, we'll be sitting there playing around. I'll try to tickle him, and he, he like just automatically like don't. Like, like don't. I don't like none of that, any of that stuff. There's a lot. Of, I don't like being hugged because of it. Like, like, like I'm never, I've never been able to be like affectionate towards another individual. I can't, I can't like public display of affection. I can't do it now because of it. I can't be affectionate towards another person, and uh, like in so many ways. Like it take it takes re- a really long time for me to even be affectionate towards anybody. Like for I just really started time. being affectionate towards her just recently, I and it's been, been I've been with her for three years. years, and she doesn't understand it. It's like I lived a hard life. Sometimes he'll and just then, like sit there and he'll he'll be like this when I give him a hug, and I'm just like. And then like. Uh, but I, I don't. I don't. When I got older, care. I'll I'll still hug him. I'll still embrace him because I love him. Like. When I got older, my mother seen the, the, like the type of person that I was and that I was always going to be, what she thought I was always going to be. And like, uh, she used to take me on these, I was on like 16, 17, 18, 19. She'd take me on these, these things. She called them Amazing Adventures of a Super Ho. And I would run the streets while my mom prostituted and she would make me sell drugs. We'll go, I've been in every alley on Van Buren from the freeway, the I-17, all the way down up until like 24th Street in Van Buren. 
every single last alley. And when he Little, was 12, he went to go get dope for his mom one day, some crack for his mom, and got and got shot in the head. I was, I was, I was 19. Oh, you were 19 at the time? I was 19 years old. It was around the time when Mark Goodell was running around, and my mom, one of the very few people to ever escape him, he ripped a big patch of my mom's hair out. She's like, she was like missing a big patch of hair from him ripping her hair out of her head. But my mother escaped him. She beat, he beat her up real bad, but she ends up, she fights back, gets him up off of him. It was the same night. And she comes back with the money that he had handed to her. And I go, she makes me go get her dope. And as I'm walking, there was this one, this one girl. I don't know why I would do it every time I would see her. I would either give her money or I'd give her dope, you know, try to help her out because she was out there hauling. And she set me up. She set me up to get robbed by this guy. This guy jumps out the bushes and he shoots me because I didn't want to give him what I had. He shot me in the head, point blank, with a nine millimeter, dropped me to the ground. But I was so high on charm at the time, I still got back up. Even though I couldn't see nothing and I couldn't barely stand, he hits me, punches me in the face, and I still get back up. He just turned around and walked away. But I had a hole, like I had three hoodies and a beanie on, it was the winter time. He knocked all three of my hoodies off, knocked my beanie off, knocked this big piece like right here like this, back all the way like this, and it came out the bottom part of my neck right here like this, on the bottom part. Blew this all back like this, and I just had just like pulled my, uh, my hoodie, one of my hoodies, and put it right here like this and got my beanie and put it on top of my head and walked home. You didn't go to that hospital? I took the bus to the hospital by myself because nobody wanted to go with me. They didn't know that I was shot in the head like that, and I didn't realize that I was shot. My uncle kept trying to tell me, but like it wasn't registering in my head because I was high on charm. What is that? It's um, like uh, PCP. So because I'm high on PCP, I'm not really, nothing's registering to me. He keeps telling me that you, you need to go to the hospital, dude. You got, it looks like you've been shot. So you got two holes, you know, you need to go. And I was like, well, somebody take me up there. Somebody take me up there. And I took the Route 24 bus all the way to McDowell and got on the McDowell bus and went to the one that's on 12th Street by myself, bleeding. And people are just looking at me because I'm covered in blood. And you can see that I had been shot. And everybody's looking at me like, how are you even still standing? I get to the hospital and then that's when, when the doctor tells me that I had been shot, that's when they registered. And they just stitched me up and sent me on my way, gave me some Percocets and, and they like, uh, they gave me a morphine drip for a little while and they gave me three Percocets. I sat in the hospital for like, maybe like 12 hours and then they, made, they, they discharged me. Like I lived a really, really rough life and the last thing I ever want for any of my kids is to live the life that I lived. And I know that this is probably like, I, I can't just go and just give my child to anybody and think that they're gonna live a good life. I can go somewhere like this and know for a fact that I could pick a family that's, that is gonna do the right thing. And, and I know for a fact that my child's gonna live a good life. I know they're gonna be loved, I know they're gonna be cared for, I know they're gonna be clothed, I know they're gonna be housed, I know they're gonna get educated. I know they're probably gonna go to college. My my two kids that I gave up for adoption right now, um, one of them's in pageants, and the other one they want to put in pageants. My the one I just had, they want to have her put in pageants too. So, you guys are amazing. Thank you. I think you guys are amazing. You sit there and you work your whole life and make sure that these children have somewhere good to go, and then make sure that the family that's putting the child up 
is taken care of. That's a beautiful thing to me. I respect you guys in so many ways. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I was I was telling him when we got. I was want to talk to you on the phone. Yeah, when I first called, mm-hmm. when I when yeah. I first got to the motel and stuff like that after they did the the intake mm-hmm. and all that, and they gave us the hotel bag and the food box and stuff like that. I was sitting here looking at him, and I was like, I was like, look at this. We the last adoption agency we went to, we sat in a motel for a week. I was hungry the whole time. They didn't give me no money, no nothing to get, nothing to eat, and I was just sitting there hungry. The we ended up going to the $185 an hour just to order an Uber. He was an adoption lawyer who owned an adoption agency, and he would charge his lawyer fees to He's order an Uber. profit or nonprofit? Yeah. We we do this because we believe in it. I was yeah. adopted, and my husband is um, he does the business side of it. And when my mom died. Um, three years ago. We started the Aftercare Foundation, so we help birth parents after you have the baby, and everything's free, so we help with, like, job placement, um, resumes. They wouldn't even help me none. It's like, you know, I have a lot of kids, and I kept telling them, man, it's like, you know, you think think that that men don't get postpartum? Well, we do. Yes, they do. And they wouldn't help me with anything. Yes, they do. I couldn't get them to do anything for me. Oh, no, we'll pay for counseling. We'll pay for anything. Yeah. And see, that's the thing is, like, like I was sitting there, and I'm unpacking everything and, like, just looking, and I'm, like, I'm, I looked over at him, and I was, like, look at this. Like, they do. This is how they're supposed to do it. Like, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. I was like, this is just you have crazy. To do this they, for the right reasons. They, yeah, you guys treated us so well. Like, you guys gave us food. Mm-hmm. So that we weren't sitting there hungry, gave us dishes and everything like that. Like we didn't have none of that stuff when we went. When we were sitting at the motel over there, when I was hungry, we literally had to walk next door to the other motel and steal food. Your people, you're not just, just somebody to, to put eat. in a hotel. That's not. Yeah, I get it. I'm sitting there looking at it like. So far, I really like the way you guys do things. Like, And if there's ever something, you know, come talk to me. Because like I said, I'm one of the founders and the directors, so I will fix it. I don't, I, I don't let anybody disrespect birth parents because, like I said, my mom was one. And she wasn't respected. One so. of my uncles was, um, was adopted from when he was a baby. He was a, he was a, a, a preemie, though. And he was my aunt Banji uh, was the one who adopted him. But he was so small that you could hold him in the palm of your hand and he wore doll clothes. Oh. And my aunt nursed him back to health. And, and he's still, he's living today because of her. If it wasn't for her, he'd be dead because his mother didn't care. She was going to flush him down the toilet. Adoption's a beautiful thing. We have a pregnancy crisis hotline available 24-7 by phone or text at 623-695-4112, or you can call our toll-free number 1-800-340-9665. We can make an immediate appointment with you to get you to a safe place, provide food and clothing, and started on creating an Arizona adoption plan or give you more information. You can check out our blogs on our website at azpregnancyhelp.com. Thank you for joining us on Birth Mother Matters and Adoption, written and produced by Kelly Rourke Scary and edited by me, Ron Rains. If you enjoy this podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thanks to Grapes for letting us use their song I Don't Know as our theme song. Join us next time for Birth Mother Matters and Adoption. For Kelly Rourke Scary, I'm Ron Rains, and we'll see you then.